so exciting to finally get to sing Christmas songs, something we look forward to all year long, and uh, just great to do it. Thank you, worship team. So just a reminder, we don't have our regular Wednesday night classes in the month of December, but as you saw during the announcement loop, there's lots going on. And uh, this week, the major focus is our school play. And so, uh, as you can notice, we're not building walls and fireplaces on the, uh, on the platform. This is all for the, the school play. And uh, that's why Vicki wasn't playing the drums, because she would have been the, uh, the, the woman behind the curtain. Um, and, uh, but we're excited about it. And so, uh, I invite you to all come. Uh, the school is our biggest ministry of the church and uh, our kids are amazing in the school. I'd love for you guys to see them uh, just pointing us in the right direction this, this season. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, or 7, I'm sorry. This is the second Sunday of Advent. Normally you would have a Christmas-type message about the shepherds, or wise men, or Mary, or Joseph, or whatever else. But given that we've been in 1 Samuel and given where we left in 1 Samuel, I can't stop there and jump to uh, the Advent messages because Israel's in a terrible spot. And I thought, this is weird, right? Like, this is not what I'm supposed to be preaching this time of year. But I realized one of the things that we don't always emphasize during, emphasize during uh, Advent season is the culture and the climate and the condition of Israel during this time period. This is not a happy time period in the nation of Israel. They are ruled by the Romans. Their religious leaders are, are not um, consistent. They're not genuine. Uh, the people live in fear of the Romans. They live in fear of their religious leaders. You even have their, their uh, Herod, who's supposed to be one of them, is basically a puppet leader of Rome. And so it's a bitter time. So much so that that's why we have so many Marys in the New Testament. Because Mary means bitter in Hebrew, Mara. And so it, it's, just, it's just a sense of the times. And so as we're going to look at a very dark time period in 1 Samuel and God turning that around, I think it's good to emphasize that, that when Jesus finally came to earth as a baby, um, he came at a very dark time a time where there seemed to be no hope, a time when they thought, we're, we're destroyed. Uh, what, what are we living for? And so I think today's message will tie right in with that. In quick summary, the nation of Israel, the sin is rampant. The people of God don't look like the people of God. They've lost their lives in battle. They've lost their freedom to the Philistines. And they've ultimately lost God's presence as they tried to manipulate him by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And so they've been slave to the Phil slaves to the Philistines for the past seven months. Their religious leaders are dead and gone. Only Samuel's left. And I, I just the concept that's really struck me as we've been in 1 Samuel is that they're slaves in the promised land. I mean, that concept of we were slaves in Egypt, and God saved us and brought us out of there, and now we're slaves once again, even in the promised land. How did we get here? 
Meanwhile, their enemy, the Philistines, willingly return the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, because they confiscate it, and then God defeats them without raising a sword. Everywhere the Ark goes, disease and death follows, and they said, we've got to get this thing out of here. And so the last message I preached, the, the Ark returned to Beth Shemesh, right there on the border, and the people were overjoyed to have the presence of God back. But it didn't last in Beth Shemesh, right? Because all these, although these were Levites and they knew how to worship, um, 70 men looked into the Ark of the Covenant, treated it like a treasure box rather than the, the presence of God, and so they were killed. And so the people of Beth Shemesh, who were blessed to have God's presence in their town, say, we got to get rid of this thing. And they pass it off uh, to uh, Jabesh Gilead. I'm sorry, Kiriath Jerem, who take care of the Ark for around the next 20 years. And 1 Samuel 7, 2 says the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. And during that time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. The key word here is seemed. It seemed the Lord had abandoned them. Does the Lord ever abandon his people? No. But we walk away from him from time to time. So that's where the nation of Israel is. This is where the nation of Israel is during the time of Jesus' arrival. And I would venture to say, that's kind of where we are right now as well. Many are living through a time where if they're not just fearful, they're also depressed. We've lost much. Our own culture looks more and more depraved as sin is celebrated and righteousness is mocked. Seems like the liar and the thief get away with no consequence, and you wonder, where are all the righteous people? Just like Israel, I think we're at a low point in our nation's history, maybe not the lowest point at this juncture, but we're definitely at a low point. Our country's divided. All you have to see is political polls and voting results and all the rest. We're divided. There's groups fighting for their own rights and desires, and then there are some that are fighting for God's goodwill and plan. And so you almost sense destruction at the door. And so the question I want to ask is, do we feel like God has abandoned our nation? Is all utterly lost? Do we feel that way? Do we feel like we can come back from where we've been going and the path that we're on? Have you lost all hope and faith that this can once again be a nation that's a beacon of light to the world? What are we to do? 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshipped only the Lord. Now let's look at Samuel. Remember, he's a boy. Initially was a boy that was born as a gift to God. His mom, Hannah, said, if you bless me with a child, I'll give him back to you. Then later on, we saw he's one of the few people that can hear the voice of God. And not only does he hear the voice of God, he's willing to speak truth to power even when it's painful. Now he's forced to lead God's people because his mentors and leaders, the religious leaders, are now dead. And he's the only one left. 
God is looking for Samuels in this day and age as well. Who was Samuel? He was a nobody. An adopted kid who didn't have good leadership in his life and yet did the right thing when nobody else would. I think there's Samuels in this room. It is Samuel that tells the people what they should do in a difficult time like this. And there's three things. Get rid of your idols, turn your hearts to the Lord, and obey Him alone. Sounds simple enough, right? But let's go a little bit deeper on here. It takes desperate times for people to give up their idols. It takes desperate times. Most people don't give up their idols. The pursuit of money, the quest for power, the allure of the best things in this world, the dream of health and happiness are all hard things to release. The only way people are able to release these things is when they achieve them and find them utterly empty. And if you have achieved these things, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't yet, you'll learn. (laughs) The uh, things we give our life to ultimately are utterly empty without Jesus. Or... We lose them by force or our own failure. And so I do think that's where the depression is coming from in our day and age. We've either achieved all we wished and it's empty or we're mourning the loss of our hopes and dreams. And so the question I have is, what are the idols of the people of covenant? What are our idols? Does our entertainment own us? How many times have you started watching a show and it started out okay, but then it turned a corner and you're like, oh, this doesn't glorify God. But man, I I really like the start of the show. I want to see what happens. And before you know it, by the 18th episode, you would have never started watching that show if it started on episode 18. But for whatever reason, you're making allowance for it now. Is our reality so bad that we're constantly seeking to escape it? Maybe you've pursued good things in life. But those good things have caused you to become distant from God. Either it's eaten up your time or your attention or your focus, and you have less time for him. Even though it's a good thing, it's become an idol to you. Maybe that's relationships that's put a wedge between you and your Savior. I think sometimes that's one of the most painful things, especially when those relationships started off God-honoring. Maybe it was you and a family member or a friend that were both pursuing God and and they chose to walk away and you wanted to maintain the friendship, but you also wanted to pursue God and and you're having trouble releasing that person and not having the same kind of depth because they're not going the same direction as you. Or maybe it's a right or desire that you know in God's eyes is sin, but you want to do it anyway. I think the first step in gaining the fullness of God's presence and reclaiming a lost nation for God is is to get rid of our idols. We've got to get rid of our idols. Now this saint may seem drastic to our culture. Who unplugs their TV? <laughs> I, I feel so much better now that I'm hardly on social media at all. I mean, I just feel better about myself. I just feel freer. I don't play the same comparison games. What if we were to sell what everyone else values? What if we were to move away from those friends and family that pull our heart away from God? Maybe we no longer visit websites that steal our love or for God and distract us from the truth. See, there's this pressure, and we all know what it is, right? This pressure to connect and be relevant in our culture, 
But those things have become idols to us. God says, you want me? I don't share my love and intimacy. Get rid of your idols. That's step one. But what happens if we stop there? Well, Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 12, 43 through 45. He says, when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finding none. Then it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home empty, swept in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more than more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation. That's what happens when you clean house and you don't fill it up with good things. If you leave an empty space, that stuff's going to come right back in here. And you know how I know this? Because I have cassette tapes and CDs that I burned after youth camp a couple years. <laughs> I got convicted about some of the stuff I was listening to, some of the stuff I was letting in my life. And we had this huge party and burning them and all the rest. I bought those same things back again. Why? Because I didn't fill that empty space with good things. If you don't fill up that, so that's step one. And step one's hard. It is hard. But if you can venture past step one, you feel really good for a while. But there's a step two. The second step is turning your hearts to the Lord. Now, the heart is the core of your being. It's what you believe to be truly true. So your thoughts, your words, your actions don't start here. They start here. They start with your core beliefs. And when it says turn your hearts to the Lord, what it means is you seek him first daily for the way you're going to view the world. Everything you believe about yourself, about how the world works, about your future, about your past, starts with seeking the Lord. What does he say about me? Doesn't start with checking the news. Doesn't start with checking social media. Doesn't start with asking other people. When you see God with your heart, daily you're saying, who am I? What's this all about? And then you believe it in the core of your being. That's step two. And the final step is just as important as the other two. It's not enough to just clean your house of things that trap you in sin. And it's not enough to just pursue the voice of God. It is possible to have people in church who've done both those things and are still lost. <laughs> That's kind of a scary thought, right? No, the third thing is to obey God alone. Obey God alone. It doesn't matter what you know if you don't apply it to your life. It doesn't matter. And I've used this illustration for years. I can know everything there is about fighting fires and being a fireman. I can buy badges and hats and gear and all the rest. But if I never fight fires, if I never fit the role of a fireman, that knowledge has no power. I'm not a fireman. We know the truth, guys, but if we don't obey God alone, it, it has no power, has no transformation for your life. There will always be things that battle for priority in your life. There will always be things that demand your loyalty, things that you trust and belong to. And God says, 
I want you to obey me alone. And this is huge. Because there's always going to be a pressure to obey someone or something else. If you don't obey what we tell you to do and see the world we do, you're going to lose your job. You're going to get a failing grade on your test. You're going to lose relationship with me. You're going to always be marginalized. God says, I want you to obey me over your government, obey me over your teachers, obey me even over your parents. Obey me alone. First priority. No matter what. So, if we, the people of God, do exactly what he says, clean our house of idols, turn our hearts toward God daily, and obey him alone, there's hope. Verse 6. Then Samuel told them, Gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and in a great ceremony drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. So after they'd done these three things, they gathered together at worship of God at a specific place that Samuel chose. This service includes fasting and a unique part of the worship service. And it sounds kind of weird, right? Let's gather water from a well and dump it on the ground. Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's say I have this bottle of water here today, and I'm not on the ground, but let's say I was to open this up and pour it out on the carpet. How do I get it back in the bottle? Let's pretend this carpet is dry earth. And I pour it out. Can I ever get it back in the bottle? No. So what are they doing with that gesture of worship? If this is us, God, I am fully and completely surrendering to you. And I don't want any part of me back that's not saturated with you. A complete and total surrender and abandonment of self and a surrender to God. That's what this ceremony meant. And then they confessed their sins. What sins would they be talking about? Well, let's talk about the location. He tells them to go to a specific place, a place called Mizpah. Now, Mizpah is a mountaintop in the tribe of Benjamin. And if you read the end of the book of Judges, one of the lowest, if not the lowest point in Israel's history up to that point was a situation where this Levite had a concubine, and he stayed in, 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 the, uh, in, in the tribe of Benjamin in a specific town. And in the middle of the night, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, all the men of the town asked for this man to be brought out so they could have their way with him. And instead, he pushed his concubine out of the house, and she was abused all night and died on the doorstep. And he cut her into 12 pieces and sent her body to the 12 tribes of Israel and said, look how evil and awful the tribe of Benjamin was. And so all the other 11 tribes gathered at Mizpah to decide what to do against evil Benjamin. And they started a civil war. And lots and lots of Israelites died. And the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely wiped out. Now, that's the book of Judges. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. And sometimes when we jump from book to book, we think, well, what's the time period between the two of these? 
Judges and Samuel might as well be one book. Samuel was born out of this situation and scenario. So it's still fresh. It's like 20, 25, 30 years. So when he says, let's gather at Mizpah, the last time they gathered at Mizpah, they experienced civil war. Last time they went, they realized that the extent of their sin, the extent of their sin could cause great death and damage. It was a reminder that it took them to the point of killing. So instead of choosing to fight at Mizpah, they're ready to surrender at Mizpah. So Mizpah would be a place where they would not only confess their sins, but the sins of their nation. God, look at us. Look at what we've done. Our brothers and sisters, we've waged war against each other. Sin has so invaded our life that we're destroying ourselves and we want to be poured out before you and we need you. Bring us back from the the brink of destruction. God is the ultimate judge and bringer of justice. If we have problems with each other, give it to God. Let him work it out. The gospel is all about grace and forgiveness. Let him cleanse our hearts and lives. And then our nation will turn back to God. We've got to stop waging war against each other. And not only confess our own sin and shortcoming, but say we're part of a nation that's fallen apart. It may not be me, and it may not be my family, but I'm part of this. And I will share in, in the ownership of the failures of the church and the failures of my community. God, please forgive us. Verse 7. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. Does it ever seem that when you're getting on the right track, things get worse? Always for me. Always. And it's funny because part of the reason they're pursuing God in this situation and scenario is they're afraid of the Philistines. And in the midst of them surrendering to God at Mizpah, the Philistines hear about it and they're ready to wipe them out. They didn't come to Mizpah for battle. They're not wearing armor. They're not ready for that. They're not in that attitude. And so now, as they're finally surrendering In obedience, their greatest fear happens. Guys, (laughs) I just want to tell you, if you surrender to Jesus, your greatest fear may happen. Has God abandoned us? Do we leave this place of worship? Do we give up on the church? What is their example here? They easily could have said, let's run home. This, they're coming here, and, and we're, we're not going to be here when they show up. They plead to Samuel. Samuel, we're all in. We're water poured on the ground. We can't leave now. We're all in on God. Please call out to God to deliver us. 
Why do things get worse sometimes? Because the enemy hates to lose. You ever played a game with a sore loser? I mean, your greatest victory can be like the worst feeling ever because of their bad behavior. I used to be really bad about that. My brother and sister wouldn't play board games with me after a while because I would toss it, chuck it, throw a fit, ruin the whole scenario, right? Of course, I was the baby, and they picked on me a lot. It's all their fault. (laughs) That's how our enemy the devil is. He doesn't mind you doing whatever you do when you're his. But as soon as Jesus delivers you from the cell that the enemy and sin has had you in, he wants to throw you right back in. So, if you're being obedient to God, do not fear the attack of the enemy because your deliverer is on the way. You don't pull away from God in those moments. You hold tighter to him because he's your only hope. I think that's why God allows those moments to happen. It's a testing of our faith. It's a growing of relationship. It's easy to trust God and say those things. Oh, forgive me, God. Oh, I want to make things right when things are good. It's when things get difficult that we're like, I'm not sure I want to be in this relationship anymore. You've got to trust the almighty God. You've got to trust His promises in those moments. And when we surrender to God, we'll find ourselves safely in His hands. A God who can defeat our enemy without raising a sword. When you're on your knees praying, it gets more difficult. Just pray harder. It says, the Lord answered them. How did He answer? Verses 10 through 17. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. This is a movie moment. Maybe someday they'll make a movie out of this. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to a place below Bethkar, slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel then took a large stone and placed it between the towns of Mizpah and Jeshana. He named it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. For he said, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and didn't invade Israel again for some time. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the Lord's powerful hand was raised against the Philistines. The Israelite villages near Ekron and Gath that the Philistines had captured were restored to Israel along with the rest of the territory that the, that the Philistines had taken. There was peace between Israel and the Amorites in those days, and Samuel continued, continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Each year he traveled around, setting up his court first at Bethel, then Gilgal, then at Mizpah. He judged the people of Israel at each of those places. Then he would return to his home at Ramah, and he would hear cases there too, and Samuel built an altar to the Lord at Ramah. Let me just say, Nothing can stop God's people when we get rid of our idols, turn our hearts to God, obey Him only, and surrender in worship. God will do the miraculous in such a way that only He gets the glory. Now, let's, let's look back at our, at our nation. How is He going to fix our nation? I have no idea. From my perspective, it seems impossible. How's he going to fix a broken church? Denominational warfare, pride and arrogance, instead of the saving of souls and making disciples. How is he going to do this? I don't know. Can he? Oh, yes. 
Will he? He's waiting. He's eager. Are we going to do those things so he can move? One of my hopes is what happened this last year. A miracle in our lifetime. The overturning of Roe versus Wade. Miracle. The state of West Virginia. For the most part, abortion is almost completely illegal. We've ended the genocide of our youngest in our state. How is that possible in the midst of this culture? God can work in ways that seem impossible in a moment. If God can do that, and I think that's a gift he gave us this year. As we look at everything as a whole, we think, how? Moments like that is what we hold on to. Out of this situation, Samuel becomes the last judge of Israel. And it all started with one guy willing to hear the voice of God, speak truth to power, and be willing to stand in the gap. And if we've got more than one Samuel in this room, hmm, wow. Finally, Samuel sets up a stone as a monument and names it Ebenezer. Well, there's our Christmas connection right there. Ebenezer Scrooge, right? But the name Ebenezer means rock of help. And he says, up to this point, God has helped us. Up to this point. Now, why does he name it Ebenezer? Well, if you want to, you can turn back earlier in Samuel. Do you know the place where they lost the Ark of the Covenant in battle was called Ebenezer? They claimed God is our rock when God wasn't their rock. And they lost God's presence. And here, Samuel sets up a rock and says, no, this is Ebenezer. This is the place where God was our help. And it's to be a reminder to us that God will help us if we're on his side. So, it's good to have Ebenezer's. It's good to have monuments, points that point us to history and the fact. That's part of the, 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 the tragedy of our day and age when monuments are being defaced and torn down, right? They're meant to remind us of God's faithfulness. They're meant to remind us of our victories. And sometimes those monuments are also meant to remind us of our defeats, aren't they not? What are the monuments in your life? Maybe some of those monuments are places. From one of mine, it's youth camp. Every time I go there and I see those kids running around, I remember being one of those kids running around, and I remember God meeting me and calling me and ministering to me. Covenant has been that place to me. When God called me, it seemed like all over God's good earth, between college and then coming back to Morgantown, Covenant was a place, an Ebenezer for me. What are your Ebenezers? Maybe some of your Ebenezers are people, people that you know you can call and say, I'm struggling. Is God going to be faithful? And they say, yes. Today, we, this place can be a Mizpah for our nation. And we're going to have communion. And I want to challenge you guys to do those four things. And the cross, you can't really see it right now. It's there. The cross can always be our Ebenezer. Because when our, in our moments of greatest doubt, every time we see a cross, we remember. How much does God love us? 
more than anybody else ever could. He loves us literally to death and back again. So, if we're willing, God will turn the church around. God will turn our town around. God will turn our family around. God will turn our state around. God will turn our nation around. God can turn our world around. But it starts with small beginnings. You and me being faithful to what he calls us to do. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word and the fullness of your presence. And I ask and pray, Lord, this morning that we would be willing to come to you, Lord, and be willing to get rid of the idols in our lives. These idols may not be the same for each individual, but we all have them, Lord. And they may not be the idols of our youth that we sacrificed long ago. And we, maybe this morning we were unaware of what some of those idols are, but you reveal them to us, Lord. Let us be willing to lay down the things that eat up of our time and our focus and our attention and our heart that hinder our growth with you and our ministry to others. Help us to seek you with all of our heart, Lord, every day coming to you and letting you define truth for us, letting you tell us who we are, letting you lead our steps. And help us to obey you alone. We feel pressure constantly, Lord God, to comply, to fit in, to not rock the boat, to, to accept everything, and to just be a part. And yet, Lord, that's not what you call us to do. You say, no matter what, you obey me alone. The wars are coming, the battles are coming as soon as we step out today. But Lord, you have the victory. You are our Ebenezer, our rock of help. And so Lord, hear our prayers today as we confess our sins, as we pour out our hearts before you, wanting nothing back. Meet us in your name. Amen. I'm going to bless the elements. Let me give you some instruction on our communion this morning. Um, since